faith. We want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I'm always amazed at how many of you come back in the evening after I wear you out on a Sunday morning with lessons like what we had today. But I'm appreciative, and I know you're here for God and in service and love for him, and uh, I'm excited to be here to worship with you and open God's word with you. Uh, as was already said earlier, we're going to talk about the afterlife and uh, talk about what we can and probably more what we cannot know about the afterlife. And so we're going to spend some time dealing with um, some, some pretty amazing ideas. And there's a story told about a, a Polish rabbi back in the 19th century called, named Hofet Chaim. Uh, he was an uh, a American missionary, had gone and visited in Poland and uh, gone into the rabbi's house. And what he saw was a, a simple room that was just a room filled with books. There was a table and a bench, and that's it. And that, that's all the missionary, the, the American saw. And he was astonished by that. He said, Rabbi, where's all your furniture? The rabbi said, where's yours? And the missionary said, well, at home, I, I don't belong here. And the rabbi said, I don't either. Shouldn't that be our perspective? I, I don't belong here. This, this is not my home. This, we sing it, right? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We have a hard time with that idea. Even though we are repeatedly, and we pointed out these verses this morning in Hebrews and 1 Peter, where we're called pilgrims and, and strangers and aliens, that, that we don't really belong here. We belong somewhere else. We belong at home but we don't yet live at home. Yet I'm not sure our lives always reflect that. And I think one of the reasons our lives don't reflect that is because there is a gross misunderstanding as to how the afterlife works and what it is really about. Uh, and we have a tendency within Christianity to be utterly unimpressed with the biblical presentation of heaven. At least what we've been taught is the biblical presentation of heaven. And I think we are also thoroughly unimpressed with the, with the biblical presentation of hell. And so it will do us well to spend a few minutes talking about both places. We know we will be resurrected. You should know that because most of you are here this morning to hear that lesson entitled Resurrection. So... We've already established that point. I, I want to move on to talk about what is it that's around the next bend. My wife saw my sermon earlier on my iPad, and she goes, really, a picture of fall? Uh, you know, I, I'm excited that hopefully that's the only thing she'll be annoyed with in this sermon. So here we go. It, I, I want to talk about what we know and don't know about the afterlife, about heaven and hell. The truth is, we know astonishingly little. That is not going to be it. Okay. Y'all just going to have to listen tonight. Here we go. 
or Elijah is going to do his uh, computer magic back there and make everything readable because that's how Elijah works. So we, we, are, we know very little about heaven or hell. For instance, what this slide is supposed to be read as saying is this. Our pictures are described, whoo, perfect. Our pictures are described in physical terms. For instance, mansions over the hilltop. Y'all have heard that, right? We've sang that. The idea that, that is often shown is that we, we all have these homes in heaven, these brilliantly beautiful, uh, robust mansions that we get to live in. Isn't that exciting? Real estate in heaven. But is that really the idea? In John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There are many dwelling places, many mansions is where this idea comes from. If it were not so, I would not tell you so. But it is so. So I go to prepare this place for you so that where I go, you may come also. Was what Jesus teaching there that we all have prime real estate in heaven with a beautiful lake in the backyard and uh, multiple rooms in which we can live in? I don't think so. We have Revelation 22, which talks about streets of gold and and various fruits that are there in these streets of gold. Uh, There he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the lamb down in the, the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And so you've got this beautiful picture of not just prime real estate, but prime property. It's beautiful. Land, trees, rivers. You've got a temple that is filled with thunder and lightning and storms. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. So the thermostat's a little off. I, I don't say that to trivialize heaven. I say that to trivialize our common understanding of heaven. I don't know that heaven should be understood other than just these being physical, accommodative language to help us understand a place that otherwise we would not understand. We've got gates of pearls and and cities made of precious gems and, and incredible adornments. And then we've got hell that is created of fire and darkness and horrific sounds like weeping and the gnashing of teeth and just horrible torments that people endure endlessly. So all of these are physical descriptions of a place that is not confined within the trappings of the flesh, which makes it kind of hard to understand. 
Not only that, the pictures we have are contradictory. Notice I put that in quotes because I do not believe there are contradictions in Scripture. I think they are contradictory in a sense on purpose so that we don't try to say dogmatically that it's one way or the other because what we have are, are, are various descriptions of the same thing. Like a God who is a God of peace, a, a God where there is worship happening continually with angelic beings, but it is also a temple that is filled with storms and lightning and earthquakes and hail. A, a place where there are no tears. And I have had so many people come to me over the years and say, I don't get that. I understand that there's no tears, but also I, I wonder how will it be that, that I could know that my loved one didn't make it. Am I not going to care? And I've heard so many explanations of that that honestly either sound cruel, hard-hearted, or ignorant. The truth is, it's, it's kind of difficult to understand that. You got hell and fire burning forever, but also intense darkness. How do you have fire burning with darkness? Again, I remember hearing as a kid, the hottest fire is invisible fire. As if that helps us out. I, 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 don't, I don't know that we have to make this make physical sense. I think the point of it is not that it is literally these things, these earthly things that we will experience in heaven something else. The pictures we have of heaven are revealed in kingdom language. Honestly, much of what we have that we often associate with heaven aren't even passages about heaven. For instance, you work your way through the gospel of Matthew and the term heaven is used quite frequently in, in the phrase kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. But in those passages where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's describing the church, not the spiritual dwelling place of those who belong to the Lord. And so those kingdom of heaven passages where it talked about the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed does not mean God's dwelling place is going to grow. It means the church is going to grow. And so a lot of the passages that we have that we think refer to heaven actually refer to the church. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that the same is true of Revelation 21 and 22. You look through Revelation 21 and 22, and we'll look at some uh, examples in just a moment. What you have is not necessarily a depiction of the spiritual kingdom that if you take all of those phrases literally comes down to this earth in a cubicle city and that city dwells on this earth in some fantastic way for all of eternity that as N.T. Wright says heaven comes down to earth and we have a a pseudo physical eternal existence in some sort of translated physical body No! 
What the Bible teaches in Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about the way the church was promised to be. And if anything, what you have is an emphasis in Scripture that God is more concerned about us and our role in the church than he is with us having an understanding of the afterlife. He wants us to be busy in the kingdom. He wants us to be dedicated to the kingdom and the work he's doing through it. He wants us to be servants, as we've studied through the book of Isaiah and the adult class in here. He wants us to be servants in that new kingdom he established through Jesus. You keep going, a lot of our descriptions of heaven are fantastical. I figure if Chris can use electronical up here, I can use fantastical, right? I mean, it... It, it, our pictures, and I don't mean that in the sense of they are fabricated or that, or that they are unreal, but they are apocalyptic. They help us to see something in an amazing and, and mind-blowing way that we wouldn't see otherwise. And here's what I mean by that. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. We'll look at these passages backwards. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now hold your place there. We're going to come right back to Revelation. But Isaiah 65, verse 17, says here, For I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Doesn't that sound similar? And we understand the book of Isaiah to be referring to this messianic kingdom that was going to come through Emmanuel, mentioned back in chapter 7 and following, and through the suffering servant, which is mentioned from chapters 49 and following. That this, this new kingdom was going to be something God established in replacing the old kingdom. And Isaiah spends a lot of time talking about the this versus this. You've got the, uh, the lofty, arrogant city versus New Jerusalem. You've got the cut-down tree versus the seed or the remnant. You've got the, the wicked versus the servants. And you have the old earth and heavens as opposed to the new earth and heavens. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Look with me again back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8. Isaiah 25 verse 8. I'll read verse 7 and 8. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the people, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. Again, doesn't that sound like parallels? Do one more. Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 and following. Revelation 21, 23 and following. Here it says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gate will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor any, anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Back in Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. I want to start reading in verse 19. Here we're told about the new kingdom. The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be the everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, and your moon will not fade, and your Lord will be your everlasting light, for the days of your sorrow will be over. All your peoples will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the branch I planted, the work of my hand, that I may be glorified. The least will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. Doesn't that sound similar? I'm becoming more and more convinced that many of these passages that we've used to think about heaven, to think about the glory of heaven, is actually descriptions of the glory of the church. That this is what God has created as available to you and me. And maybe the best we can do is say that there is a telescopic fulfillment, that it is both a fulfillment of the church, but that the church will one day be perfected and will be what we think of as heaven. That the church will be, as it talked about over in Ephesians chapter 5, the bride of Christ that is prepared for, perfected, and presented spotless and blameless to her groom, Jesus himself. And so what we have here is not some description of some faraway place from another dimension or another realm, but what we have is a description of the church as God intends it to be, the perfect place for his people. So what are we left with? And that's what makes this so difficult. See, here's where I really struggle sometimes with our understanding of afterlife. Is that we're trying to understand the impossible. We, We really are, as creation, as those whom God has put on this earth, we experience the limits of creation. For instance, light. God created light, day number one. God created the the heavenly host or the the beings in heaven like the sun and the moon and the stars so that we could tell time, right? God created all of that for our use. Do we need that in heaven? Do we need that if we leave this universe? Do we need light? Do we need length, width, and space? If we leave this place, now it's a great limitation for us. I know that if I stay in this space, I'm safe. If I get a little too close to this space, I know myself well enough to know I'm going to fall and hit my head on the table down there. And so space, length, width, height, uh, this, this area, it, it allows 
allows me to have some sort of control over my life, over my body, over, over what, I, what I am now. Do we need that in heaven? Do, do we have the limitation of length and width and height in heaven? Or gravity? Or energy? Or speed? Do, do we have uh, any sort of, of limitation where we're only allowed to go so fast once we leave this physical body or we leave this physical universe? All of these things that we have in this universe are created for our ability to function. But when I leave my body behind, or it becomes, as we talked this morning, the seed for the body, the heavenly body, I will gain in resurrection. And I no longer live on this earth, but I live in God's dwelling place. Do I need all these limitations? I don't. But here's the clincher. Imagine life without one of them. Can you? Can you imagine life without space? And I don't mean space as in the place out there that we see at night with the stars blinking back at us. I mean length, width, and height. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to exist without the confines of space? I can't. I, I can't imagine existence without time. I can't even talk about existence without time because time is such a regular part of our understanding of how every day works. There you go, I already used it. Uh, we, we, we cannot imagine life without any, uh, without a single one of these. Do you erase any of the physical limitations that God has put in this world for our functioning and for our protection, if you erase any of them, life falls apart 100% because we need all of them. But what's amazing is that we don't need any of them for the heavenly body. We don't need any of them after resurrection as far as we know. None of these things stay in place. These are all limitations God placed on creation in day one, two, three, four, five, and six. So if God put these things in place so that our physical dust body can function within them, but we are going to be given a hev and heavenly body to enjoy for resurrection and eternity... All of these descriptions that we have of heaven and hell that use this world's understanding to describe it are deficient in understanding the reality of heaven and hell. None of them really apply. And what we're left with is more of a, a principled idea of what we're actually being given. Heaven is about the presence of God, while hell is about the absence of God. Heaven is about reunion, whereas hell is about solitude, about isolation, maybe. We like the term solitude. We don't like the term isolation. Heaven is about pleasure, while hell is about pain. I think we can all agree with that. Heaven is about res resolution, whereas hell is about incompleteness. 
Heaven is about satisfaction while hell is about confusion. Heaven is about worship while hell is about selfishness. Heaven is about rewards and gift while hell is about punishment and rejection. Heaven is about acceptance while hell is about rejection. Heaven is about love and relationship while hell is about separation. You see the difference? They are literally the opposites of each other. You get one or the other. There's no middle ground, and just like Isaiah did so beautifully through his 66 chapters in the Old Testament, where he basically laid out, you've got one option or the other. You either be servants of God or you be wicked. You either be the remnant or you be the despised. You either, he, he, just, he lays it out there. He draws a broad line in the sand, and you've got a choice whether you want to be, belong to God or whether you want to do it your own way. Those are your only two choices. We're given the same two choices about the afterlife. And is anybody confused as to which one's better? Isn't that abundantly clear? God doesn't want us confused here. God doesn't make it difficult to understand. And in case it's still not clear for you, let's look at a few more passages. First of all, what, what will hell be like? Well, one thing we learn, it, it's going to be permanent. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints. Those who have rejected, those who have denied God, those who have disobeyed God's will, they will experience eternal destruction. And again, I, I've heard people argue, well, how's that really possible? Uh, one of the books that I, I showed y'all this morning made that point of how is it possible to be destroyed over and over and over again or destroyed continually? Well, let me tell you something right now. It's not possible for our physical body. It might very well be possible for our heavenly body. I don't know enough about the heavenly body to be able to give that answer. What I do know is God promised eternal destruction to those who have decided to reject him. And he will accommodate and make that possible. It is horrific beyond imagining. And, and I want to make that clear. Not horrific Okay, I can understand, so, yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem pleasant. That's not the description we have of hell. Hell is not an unpleasant existence. It is a horrifying existence that should be avoided at all costs. And in case that's not clear, look at passages like Matthew chapter 5, which say it is better for you to pluck out your eye than it is to and lose one member of your body than it is to lose your whole body in hell. It is better for you to chop off your hand and lose one member of your body than it is for you to experience hell. I don't know how Jesus makes it more clear. I'm not eager to pluck out my eye. You? 
Anybody in here contemplated cutting off their right hand this week, this past week? Anyone? But if it would stop you from sinning so that you could go to heaven, worth it. That's how serious Jesus is about hell. He says, it's better to be drowned, to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of the little ones to stumble. And this is what fascinates me more than any of them. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we got the story of Jesus. And he's casting out that, uh, that, that great demon that we always talk about, the legion demon there. But here he's come across this demon, possessed man. And in verse 28, when he, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackled, he would snap the restraint and be driven by the demon into the deserted places. What is your name, Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because, he had many because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish him into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demon begged Jesus to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. Do you see how desperately the demons themselves do not want to go to a place of torment. Have you ever thought of that? You know, we, we have a habit of trivializing hell. I remember a lot of far side cartoons that would depict the devil sitting there with flames lapping all around them while they're sitting there playing poker on a table or doing some sort of activity. And heaven's always depicted as this boring place in the clouds where people just sit around and do nothing. And people have walked away from that presentation of heaven and hell with, a, with an idea that hell is the fun place and heaven is the boring place and it'd be better to go to hell. Not even the demons want to be there. Let that hit home. Not even the demons Should we not take that seriously? Just recently, uh, I don't know who it is, a rapper or somebody has, has a company that has put out Satan shoes. Have you seen these? They're black shoes. They have a pentagram emblem on the, uh, on the shoelaces. Uh, they are uh, they're only producing 666 of them because they want it to be significant. There is a drop of human blood in the sole of every shoe. That's the way people want to trifle with the concept of the devil in hell. Brothers and sisters, this is not something to trifle with. Hell is a seriously horrific place. And it is a place we earn by our sins. Go back with me over to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And the longer context of that passage is important for us to read. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey our Lord Jesus. We earn hell by our rejection of God or by our choosing sin over him. I I don't know if that scares you a little bit. It does me. It does me. Because there have been way too many occasions where I have chosen myself over him or I've chosen a life of ease over a life of serving him and doing his will or a life of of comfort for myself or my family or or a life of doing things my own way or, or, or even giving in to temptations without a clear understanding of what I'm risking. You risk everything when you choose sin. G.K. Chesterton once said, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. What he means by that is, God lets you choose whether you want to go to heaven or hell. And it is his compliment to the reality of human freedom that he will allow us to choose hell if we want to choose it. But understand, every person that goes to hell chose to go there. What about heaven? I figured we'd do hell first so we can end on a high note, right? I know I would like to. First of all, It's everlasting. John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, verse 24. Here we read, Truly I say, anyone who hears these words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death into life. It is everlasting life. And that is... You're going to be eternal either way. You're going to be resurrected into an eternal existence either way. But one is eternal destruction, eternal death, continual dying. One is life and life abundantly. That's our choice. It's perfection in God's presence. Revelation chapter 1 here where John is introducing his revelation that he had this vision and in this vision he sees uh, one like the son of man who comes and he has this great picture description here of Jesus in, in, in his glorified form. It says here before that in verse 7, look he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will one of that is not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for verse, uh, verse 6. Here, verse 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has set us free 
from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, preached to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I, I love this picture of John. And while I think a lot of the language is accommodative and it's referring back to the prophets and it's referring to things that, that, pre, that showed us the, the coming kingdom and he is showing that the kingdom has truly come and it is really seen in, in Jesus, there, there are times in this where you get these glimpses into heaven and they, they're amazing. They're amazing to see that when John sees Jesus, the man on whose breast he lay at the Last Supper, the man whom he says in his gospel that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were close. They had an intimate relationship with one another. They were, were the best of friends. Do you see what happens to John? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I saw seven golden lampstands, and one among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. It's a beautiful description. But John, when he sees it, he falls down, verse 17, at his feet like a dead man. Can't you picture it? John has this vision. He sees Jesus, a, a Lord he is familiar with. But when he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet. And it reminds me so much of the image of Isaiah at the throne room of God where his immediate response was unworthiness. Who won't have that experience when you find yourself in the presence of a perfect God? And it's just great that one day we get to experience that. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Over here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. None of what we suffer through now even compares to it. And then you look down in verse 28, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, uh, for without faith it's impossible to please God, but he who believes in him must believe he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I tell you, I, I can't give you a lot about the description of heaven. I can't give you a lot about exactly what it's going to be like and how our resurrected heavenly bodies are going to interact with that place there. But I can tell you this, it will be entirely different than what we have now. We started tonight with Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Love that song. That is not a song we will sing in heaven. I mean, listen, listen to these words. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's redeeming love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. 
Let thy goodness light a fetter. Bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's the heart, my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. All these songs we sing of worship about our unworthiness, about our failure, about our sins, about our, our, unabil- our inability to, to stand with the Lord and how much help we need in order to, to belong to him. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying. I mean, all these songs we sing, we don't get to sing there. Because one of the great things about heaven is that when we are resurrected, when we become heavenly bodies and souls, we leave the temptations, we leave the failures, we leave the troubles, we leave the difficulties of living on this earth, we leave the struggles we go through on a daily basis, we leave all of that behind and we go be with him. I can't think of anything better than that. I love this quote. No one, when he, in, no one who ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who is in heaven will be able to say, I put myself here. Because heaven is a gift. And it is something we don't deserve. It is something God has graciously offered. But it is something we can all expect because God has graciously offered. And while I I don't understand all the details, I don't need to. While I don't understand exactly how it's going to work, how my relationships with others are going to work, I don't understand how we're going to recognize one another or if we will recognize one another. I don't understand how I can exist not in this body. I don't understand so much of it. but I know he's there. And I know many others I love are there. And I know that when when I get there, I'm going to be so, so happy. I'm going to experience joy like I can't even experience in this flesh. I'm going to experience a, a sense of belonging like I will never have as a pilgrim and stranger and alien on this world. I know when I get there and the, and the shouts of victory and the shouts of welcome home and are, are filling my ears, whatever those look like, I know I'm going to be so overjoyed. I can't wait. I can't wait. I also know that if I have that to look forward to, something that grand, something that unimaginable, something that just overwhelmingly wonderful, and I don't tell others so that they can come experience that too, what a selfish person I am. If I realize the horror of hell, yet I let someone I love go there, what a horrible person I am. When I truly realize the reality of not just what I can't know, but the 
the overwhelming truth of what we can know about heaven and hell. And I don't extend that opportunity to someone else to make that decision. Shame on me. So I offer you that, that decision tonight. You have a choice whether you want to go to heaven or hell. You can go experience the presence of God and joy unimaginable, or you can go experience the horrors of hell and the absence of God. That, that's your choice. That's how John lays it out, Isaiah lays it out, all the Bible writers lay it out. You choose heaven or hell. You choose God or self. You choose righteousness versus sin. But if you want heaven, you want God, you want righteousness, you get there by being baptized into Christ. I hope you will. I hope you'll not put it off. I hope you will decide, you know what? That's worth it to me. I don't care if I have to suffer every day for the rest of my life. If it means an eternity with God, it's worth it. I hope that'll be your decision tonight. If you need to get your life right by being baptized into Christ, we encourage you to come forward and let us know how we can help you. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.